That's why we gather. Everything, at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. Uh, We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3 this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. If you need a Bible, there are some available on the tables in the back. You can also use uh, your phone, use the the English Standard Version is what we'll be using today. As you guys are doing that, uh, we'll also have it up on the screen too. Uh, I would invite you to join me uh, for a couple events coming up. Uh, So we're going to celebrate Easter this year. Um... Know that I know there's a lot of questions. You know, we're we going to do Easter again. We are, so we're going to do that again. Turns out, you know, we've been around for 41 years. We'll just keep rolling, right? So uh, we have Easter services at 8, 9:30, and 11, and we've got kids. Uh, our kids programming will be available at 9:30 and 11. Of course, if you'd like to come at 8, bring the kiddos with you. We'd love uh, to have them uh, with us as well. And before Easter, we have a three-day event called Journey to the Cross. Journey of the Cross is an interactive, we're going to convert this whole campus um, to this, uh, it's a self-guided interactive walk through the stations of the cross. Uh, Too quickly, as a people, too quickly we jump from Palm Sunday to Easter. And I would strongly encourage you uh, to slow down uh, during what's called, often called Holy Week, as as you gear up for Easter and reflect on the death and burial uh, of Jesus Christ. And so Journey of the Cross is an excellent opportunity to do that. We're gonna be here Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Uh, you can visit that website for the times uh, that we're gonna be here. It's, they're in the evening. If you have kids under the age of 10, I would encourage you, if you wanna bring them, to come on Wednesday night. Wednesday night, the 28th, will be special kid-friendly version. Uh, kids 10 and over and adults, I would encourage you to come on Thursday or Friday. Of course, you're free to come on Wednesday as well. Uh, and join us for that. Journey of the Cross is an excellent opportunity to slow down and think and pray and just hear from the Lord before Easter Sunday. And so again, you can visit that website uh, for more information. Obedience is a word that no one wants to sing about. We just got done singing. Everyone loves singing. And then Pastor Caleb wants to talk about what? Obedience, oh my gosh. Okay, so uh, as a kid, my parents said stuff to me. They said, do this, uh, and they expected what? Obedience, okay? Uh, When we, uh, an employer talks to an employee, they say, I need you to do this, want you to do this, what's expected? Obedience. Obedience is not something that we inherently like to hear, and so what I want to encourage you is, um, as we think through obedience and the law and God's law, I want you to hang with me. I hope that I can tether it to something that might cause us to actually sing. Some of us might think, you got your work cut out for you, let's see. The the, the scriptures are an interwoven tapestry. They are a series, the scriptures is a series of thread lines woven together ultimately to point us to Jesus. Now, in my industry, I hear a lot of people talk about the Bible, and there's a lot of interesting ideas as to how to think about the Bible. I've heard people say the Bible is a handbook for life. You guys ever heard anybody say that? The Bible's a handbook for life, like the handbook for your car. But I've looked at the handbook for my car And it does not work like the Bible works. In fact, when I go to my car, uh, the little dash light comes on and says, bing, bing, bing. I go to what? I go to the handbook. I open up the handbook. There's the light. There's words I don't understand. And I call my mechanic. (laughs) 
But if I was inclined to try to figure out what was wrong with my car, the handbook is going to give me step-by-step instructions on how to fix the problem. Am I right? That's how a handbook works, isn't it? That's not how the Bible works. In fact, some of us may have tried this before. We've got a big question. We've got a big problem. Lord, should I take this job? And then we do that thing where we open up the Bible and it says, kill the Amalekites. You say, that's not the job I signed up for, okay? So it doesn't work like a handbook for life. In fact, I would encourage you not to use the language of handbook for life because it might be misleading. I've also heard people say Bible, B-I-B-L-E, is basic instructions before leaving earth. The dad jokes are thick in the pastorate. B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. Well, the the issue that I have with that is, number one, there are some instructions, but there's a lot of the Bible that's not instructions. It's narrative, so that's kind of odd. The other thing, too, is uh, the goal is not about leaving earth. In fact, the end of the Bible, so to speak, is uh, new heavens and new earth and us living eternally in physical form with the presence of our God. That's how it ends, not in the sweet by and by that the chariots are going to come forth and carry us home to. God comes back to earth. Eden is made new. That's the end of the story, and the end of the story is a beginning. And some people say, well, it's, uh, it's God's personal love letter to you. And lucky for me, my name, Caleb, is actually in the Bible. <laughs> but when I read about Caleb in the Bible, I don't think I'm that guy, because that guy's dead and I'm still breathing. So it's not written, you know, it's not God's love letter to just me. And boy, as, uh, as oh boy, Western post-enlightenment individualists, we love to think that God specifically wrote us a love letter. But also when I read the scriptures, it doesn't read like a love letter. Now, I haven't gotten many. But the ones I hear about don't sound like the scriptures. Some people say, well, the scripture is ancient wisdom. Others say it's, it's about religious devotion. Others say it's a book of law. It's a law book. In fact, uh, there is a a traditional way of speaking about specifically what we call the Older Testament, and the way that some people would say it is that it's called the Law and the Prophets, the Laws of Moses and the Prophets. If you want to think about uh, the Older Testament, Jesus didn't use the word Old Testament. When he talked about the scriptures, he used the language of what? Law and Prophets. And nobody gets excited about law because obedience, But if the scriptures are primarily divinely selected historical moments where God is at work, woven together to create a grander, bigger picture that does not at the end of the day point to you or to me, but at the end of the day points to Jesus, then we can begin to understand how the scriptures weave together. Any isolated, specific portions of the scripture are simply one thread in the grander tapestry that God is communicating to us. You guys ever seen a tapestry? I've got a picture of one. A tapestry is a, what we can put up on the screen, it's a woven story. If you zoom in on the tapestry, you see thread lines running throughout. And if you look at the isolated events in scripture, in isolation, you fail to see the greater point. 
Have you ever read something in the Bible or heard something that the Bible says and been confused? Talk to me. You ever open your Bible and you're like, boy, I gotta stick to like the Gospels because Leviticus is cray cray. You guys been there with me? Right? You read like Genesis 1 and 2, you're like, we're having a good time. Genesis 3 and 4, you're like, great time. You're in the middle of Genesis. You're like, I don't even know which way is up anymore. I don't know what's going on. Because there are many times where the Bible is confusing because we have a tendency to look at biblical events in isolation, not as a woven together history. Let me put it to you another way. Everything in the scriptures, God designed to be a part of his tapestry. And there's a ton of stuff that God has done in human history that's not in the Bible. There are a ton of things we don't know about how God has been at work throughout human history, and so everything in the scriptures is selected by God to be there for us to see his grander purposes at work. At the end of the day, the tapestry is all about Jesus. If you read through the Older Testament, one of the feelings you should have is anticipation for a solution. And the Gospels speak to how that solution became manifest in Jesus Christ. Good Friday and Easter are celebrations of that pinnacle, that center of the story. And the rest of the New Testament, the letters that were written to different churches in the book of Acts, it's all trying to figure out how we live in light of Jesus Christ. And Revelation, the book that concludes the Bible in the way that we read it, speaks to Jesus' return. The Bible is all about Jesus. So if you're confused about that weird stuff, just take a, take a breath, take a step back and say, how do I see Jesus more clearly because of this seemingly weird stuff? Here's another thing too. Let me, oh boy, I gotta lean into this for a minute. Okay. I, it is good to have heroes, but we gotta be careful, fam. So, if, so one of my temptations, when my, uh, when my children are showing uh, timidity, one of my temptations is to go to the Bible and pull up the old story of David and Goliath. Hey, buddy, to my son, I say, hey, bud, you know, hey, guy, you're feeling sad, you're feeling, you're feeling bad about that baseball game, you know, as I do. <laughs> you know what, there was a guy named David, and he was little like you. And then this big, mean Goliath came. And you know what David did? He, he, he conquered his Goliath by killing him and cutting off his head. And then one day he grew up to be a great king. And then he had an affair with a woman and then killed her husband. You should be just like... Oh, wait. No, don't be like David. You know who you should be like? You should be like Solomon. See, Solomon was one of the greatest kings in all the land, and when Solomon had one request to give to God, you know what he prayed for? Wisdom. And then, out of that wisdom, he got himself 700 concubines and 300 wives. You should be just like Solomon. How about Rahab? Boy, was she faithful. Oh, Daddy, what did she do for a living? If we take the scriptures in isolation, we moralize them, and we elevate the wrong person. We make the scriptures about how you, scripture, can help me find courage or strength or wisdom so I can get through the things that I think are my problems, but the scriptures are not primarily here to serve us. They are to point us to the one with whom we find love, peace, grace, 
power to make it through the day. Moses is not ultimately about Moses. Moses points us to Jesus. And that is what the author of Hebrews here is saying. This is Hebrews chapter three, verse one and on. Here we go. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. TV time out. That's good advice. Consider Jesus. The apostle and high priest of our confession who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a, what's the word? Servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken about later. Spoken about later from Moses' perspective. I wonder what Moses was responsible for speaking about. You're never going to guess. Here we go. But Christ, that's the one who Moses was talking about. But Christ is faithful over God's house. TV time out. Not as a son, or not as a servant, but as what? You know it as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is the word of the Lord. Here we have this issue. The, the, the audience that Hebrews is written to loves and elevates Moses. Moses was the bringer of the law. And now we have this question. Now that Jesus is here, if Moses' job was to point us to Jesus, how do we think about Moses? The author says, Moses is a good, respectable example. But one of the interesting things about Moses' life is because of Moses' disobedience, he was not able to enter into or take his people into what's called the promised land. Moses was an imperfect vessel used by God. He was a tool in the hands of the Redeemer. And that is all you and I can ever hope to be. Moses is not the hero. Moses just points to the one who is. But what do we do about this law business? Because Moses wrote the law. What do we think about the law now that Jesus is here? You see it in verse three. Uh, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house. For more honor, uh, the house has more honor than the house itself. Verse five, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken about later. Moses gives us the law. Remember when uh, Mel Brooks portrayed that so vividly in, uh, what was the movie? Somebody help me out. History of the World, right? Comes down with the three tablets. I give to you these 15, skaboom, 10, (laughs) 10 commandments, right? By the way, I wouldn't suggest Hollywood or any movie, for that matter, for biblical accuracy. Moses gave us the law. What about Jesus? Here's what's interesting is, Jesus gives us law too. He's the key lawgiver. Jesus makes commands and makes demands. And now it's quiet. See, we, we, we have a tendency to sing about the grace of the Lord, but we generally shy away from trying to think about what the Lord calls us to do and how the Lord calls us to behave and how the Lord calls us to live. We we tend to shy away from that, but I want to lean into it for a minute and show you that to not look at God's law 
is to forget, number one, how relationships even work to begin with. And number two, it will shortchange you in your relationship with the Lord. There's five key uh, points or purposes of the law. Number one, one reason that God has given to us and spoken to us his, his law, his commands, his decrees, is to show us his righteousness. There's a song that we sing, and churches around the world sing it to one degree or the other. It's found in the scriptures. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy. God is, we, though we are made in the image and likeness of God, God is not like us. God is entirely other and different and righteous and set apart. And one of the things that you come to find quickly as you read through the laws of God is that he is definitely different and better than we are. And we say things like, well, you know, I, I, I don't like this idea of a God uh, giving laws. I, I, I prefer to think of God as simply loving, like an old grandfather in the sky who just distributes candy willy-nilly and, you know, pays no mind to all of my shortcomings. I, I prefer to think of God like that. I, I don't believe in a God who would give law. But you're a hypocrite. How can I boldly assert that without even knowing you? Well, let me ask. Uh, Francis Schaeffer is a philosopher and a, a leader uh, in Europe, and he passed away many years ago. But one of the things that he did, he did this little exercise. And I'm going to modernize uh, Schaeffer's work uh, to keep up with technology. And he basically posited, he said, imagine that every time you use the words, people should never, or they shouldn't do this, or they're wrong for doing that. Or how could anyone possibly choose to do X? Fill in the blank, right? It's a judgment. If every time that those words came out of your mouth, uh, uh, an app on your phone kicked on and began recording your decrees and your laws, and then at the end of your days, you stand before a cosmic judge, and the cosmic judge says, we're going to be fair. I'm not going to hold you to my laws. I'm just going to hold you to your laws. Play. And all of those decrees and all of those judgments that you've made on other people, would you be able to stand under the weight of your own judgments and your own laws? God is an actual person with actual desires and actual wants and decisions and perspective. And as an actual person, God gives law. Two, it's to restrain evil and bring about human flourishing. Without the laws of God, we would not know that monogamy is better than polyamory or polygamy. We would not recognize that self-control is the way to be. We would generally be an unforgiving people. Remember uh, God said something like, um, you know, forgive? Uh, how many of you find forgiveness to be a very natural thing, especially when you've really been hurt? Do you ever wake up and naturally think, you know what I feel like doing today? I feel like calling up that person who really hurt me, just forgiving them. Just feel like that on my, on my own self. No, we need something outside of us to compel us to think through forgiveness, self-control. It's also to set apart. There's been times in human history where God has chosen to use his laws to set apart a people. So if you've ever read through or heard about uh, the laws of the Old Testament, which, by the way, are making a lot of press these days, there are certain commands given to 
all of God's creation. And then there are certain commands given to the nation state of Israel. Some of us wonder, well, there's this stuff in the scriptures that talks about not eating like um, shellfish, but we eat shellfish. Or there's, there's the, 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 you honor the Sabbath and worship on Saturday, but here we are on Sunday. So why, how is that different? And I want you to recognize, and this is a really quick flyover, that there was a season where God gave the nation state of Israel certain commands and certain rules and certain laws to set those people apart for his grander purpose, which ultimately is to point us to and to bring about Christmas, Good Friday, and Easter. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob brought about Jesus out of that line, and he formed a whole nation to bring about Jesus. And it was to form a people group. There's, there's something that's interesting that you see, especially vivid in the New Testament. Though in the Older Testament, especially during the time when, the, when God was building the nation of Israel, there were certain punishments that were rendered by the state that do not translate to the church. As a, for instance, if you steal, I don't punish you. Whose job is that? It's the government. And the church is not a nation, it's a representative of the kingdom of God that goes into and exists in all of the nations. And so it's not the church's role to institute that civic responsibility, that civic duty, that is the role of the government. You see that in the New Testament. A fourth reason for the law is to show us our need for a savior. If you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, and walked away feeling smug, like you've got it figured out, you didn't read it right. One of the reasons why God gives us his laws is to show us our need for a savior. And we're all behaving this way, by the way. We are all in this culture behaving like legalists. If you were to go to your neighbor and say to your, and I don't recommend this, by the way, but you go to your neighbor and you say to your neighbor, if you were to die tonight, again, don't recommend leading with this question. If you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven or hell? I'll go to heaven. Okay, why do you think you're going to go to heaven? Because I'm what? A good person. How do you know that you're good? Well, you see, underneath that statement, and my, self, uh, my self-identification as a good person, is a code of laws, a bunch of boxes that I'm checking. I live up to my own laws, I self-identify as a good person because I'm obeying the laws that I believe make a good person. I wanna lean into that for a second. I mean, do you realize how arrogant that is? Man, first pastor calls us a hypocrite. Now he's saying I'm an arrogant hypocrite, this guy's a jerk, yes. And the way I know that is because the law has shown me my need for a savior. But let me lean into it. Let's say that being a good person is what gives us right standing with the king of the cosmos, okay? So uh, I'm gonna bring out my good person meter. Hope you don't mind, it's actually a thermometer. Me, 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 okay? Do you guys see it? At the top we've got good, and at the bottom we've got bad. Uh, At the top, who are we gonna put at the top? We're gonna put Mother Teresa, quintessential good person up at the top. Who are we gonna put at the bottom? We're gonna put Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, right? Garth Brooks, we're gonna put them. And we walk around, all of us are just walking around with this giant moral thermometer. We say, I'm a good person. Cool. Um, Where are you at on the moral thermometer? Oh, yeah, well, I'm certainly not Mother Teresa. 
and I'm certainly not as bad as Hitler, I'm like at 60%. Good people, right? I'm good people. Cool, where's the cutoff? Where's the good enough cutoff? Where's the line for if I can just be good enough, then God owes me? Where's the line, good person? You said you're a good person. How, how, right? It's probably, the line is probably beneath you, but above your neighbor, Frank, who just can't get his yard in order, right? You see, the law shows up and puts a mirror in front of our face because it's not my moral thermometer that decides right and wrong, holiness and righteousness. It's the king and creator of the universe, and he's made decrees, and I have not lived up to them. I desperately need a savior. Do you? Finally, all of this is not for obedience in and of itself. Remember we started the sermon, obedience. Obedience is not the end game. Obedience to God's law is simply a means to a greater end. And I want to be clear here. By, the faith, by our faith in the finished, gracious work of Christ, we are saved, redeemed, and adopted into God's family. And as our loving creator, he tells us what he wants, and he calls for obedience. These decrees, laws, and rules are for our flourishing and are built ultimately to deepen our relationship with our creator. The law is not meant simply to be obeyed. The laws of God are not simply meant to be obeyed. The obedience is for relationship. Some of us are saying, how on earth does that work? Okay, watch. Every relationship that you have is built on a set, spoken or unspoken, a set of rules and laws. Every relationship we have is operating under some set of spoken or unspoken rules and laws. And if those laws are broken, it hinders the relationship. The relationship that I have with my close friends, there's an unspoken law that if I betray one of my friends, that law is broken and the relationship is uh, fractured. Is that right? Does that happen? The relationship I have with my spouse is built on a spoken, by the way, a spoken law of fidelity. Forsaking all others, we say in the ceremony, sickness and in health, rich and in poor, country music or not, <laughs> good times and bad. We make a stated, that's, a, that's an exchange of what, vows? It's also an expectation and a code of laws. And if we break those laws, the relationship is hurt or hindered or fractured. Some of us have been there. The relationship that I have with my children has a set of spoken and unspoken laws. When I, now listen to me, I'm gonna use intentionally strong language here. When I tell my son to do something, what do I expect him to do? Obey me. Because I'm a mean uh, tyrant? Yes. Because I, because I know what's best for him, but when my son or my daughters or any of our children break those laws, those commands, what happens to the relationship? See, when they're five, it's easy. When they're 15, it's hard, and when they're 25, it's devastating. And there are some of us here now who have adult children who know very well the deep pain of those laws being broken. 
and it's caused a fracture in the relationship. You see, when we when we're in relationship with people, when we're in relationship with actual persons who have a will and ideas different than our own, we operate based on a set of laws. And if we keep those laws, the relationship grows deeper. <clears throat> now, this is gonna sound counterintuitive, but let me see if you can hang with me. Without laws in a relationship, we are not free. Without laws in our relationships, we are not free. Now you say, wait a minute, don't laws prohibit and inhibit freedoms? Yes, on the outside, we think that they do. But if I do not operate under the law of fidelity with my spouse, I am not free to have deep intimacy with my spouse, am I? If I do not operate with uh, my uh, friends under the law of loyalty, I am not free to have a deep and abiding relationship with those friends, am I? You see, it's only by restricting myself, only by being obedient to those laws, am I free to have a deep and flourishing relationship as it is with our God. We are only free to have a deep and intimate relationship with our God if we obey. Jesus Christ himself says this, if you love me, you will obey me. You see, religion says, if you obey God, then you will earn his love. But Jesus says, I love you in spite of everything that you've done or could do, and yet I call you to obey. We obey out of love. We do not obey to earn God's love. Y'all with me on that? That's what makes grace, grace. We do, we do not establish the relationship with our God based on our obedience, but we deepen the relationship based upon our obedience. Is there anything hindering you from your relationship with your God? Is there unconfessed sin? Is there active rebellion? Is there disobedience keeping you from a deep, flourishing, and abiding relationship with your God? For some of us, it's we just, we've not yet believed, we've not yet repented, turning from our sin and turning to God. For others, we've been following him for years, and yet it's grown cold and stale, and we may, upon a time of reflection and a time of confession, see that it is perhaps Something within us, an act of rebellion, a secret idolatry, a discreet breaking of his laws that's keeping us from deep rebellion. Now certainly, I wanna be clear, there are dark nights of the soul that God will put upon us in which he feels distant that is not because of our sin. That does happen, right? So I'm not saying that if, if you're you know, cool with Jesus right now that everything's happy and fun and amazing, but if it's stale, cold, and indifferent, it may be that there's something unconfessed, that there's just something between you and your God. The law is about relationship and about intimacy. And I wanna, we're gonna transition to this next uh, stage, and, and I wanna guide you into this, okay? So, so when we talk about the law, see, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by this that the law is given for our freedom for deeper relationship with our God. The imagery that generally, when I think about the scriptures and when I think about the law, the imagery that I have of my relationship with God is usually defendant to judge. Y'all with me on that? You ever envisioned yourself as the defendant and God being the judge? And certainly that's in the scriptures. It says that he judges. There's other times where I envision my relationship to my God as he as the king and me as the subject. 
underneath his dominion. Have you ever envisioned God as the cosmic king and you're just a member of the kingdom? Certainly that's biblical and certainly that is one of the ways in which we are to understand our relationship with God. But here's one. Remember I said that the law is to give us freedom for deeper relationship? The end of the Bible is a beginning. Remember in Genesis 1 and 2, it says, in the beginning. The end of the Bible is a beginning. One day Jesus Christ will return, and he will make all that which is broken whole again. And we will live with him for an eternity in deep, flourishing relationship. He will be the judge, and he will be the king. But there's an image in the scriptures that speaks to the level of our relationship, and you see it here in Hebrews as well, when it says that we are a part of God's house. Who lives in a house together? Family. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, Father. But more than that, in the book of Revelation, it's the end of the Bible, which isn't an end, it's a beginning. It doesn't end primarily, doesn't end primarily with a judge or a king. It ends primarily with a groom and a bride. In the beginning of a family, deep, intimate relationship. The imagery, I know that we've over-sexualized marriage in this culture, so you gotta hang with me. But what more of an intimate relationship could God use to describe his relationship with us than a marriage? The end is a beginning. Your relationship with your king, with the judge, with your God, is also one that a bride and a groom experience. His law is love. Would you pray with me?